Lee Ancher. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I'm laughing because uh, my guest and I were joking around a bit right before I hit the record button. But anyway, welcome again to another one of my GaudiMitzBiz22.com podcast and YouTube videos. I am joined today by a friend and my my tech guru, the guy responsible for all the bells and whistles of my Gaudi Mitzbez platform, uh, where I use Webflow uh, to as, as my basic platform. But I, I'm a complete technological idiot, what they call a Luddite. So I thank Andrew for making everything possible. Uh, Andrew uh, lives in Iowa with his wife, Cynthia. And but beyond being a tech guru, he's also a, a theologian, and he is also uh, someone who runs the his own podcast, Luminous Tradition. That's right, right? Isn't it? Yeah, Luminous Tradition. Yep. yep. Luminous Tradition. He is a lay Carmelite, and he is an expert. No, in no, all no, the- no. A broad scapular word. Not lay Carmelite. Still considering though. Just oh be clear. wow! I hear all this time. Yeah. Okay. I thought you were, uh, but you're not. But anyway, he knows all Discerning. things Carmelite. Discerning. And in fact, we've had, I've had him on the podcast dealing with uh, the question of Carmelite yep. spirituality before, but that yep. is not what we're going to talk about today, unless we meander into it. <laughs> I really just, yeah, because uh, there was no huge specific topic I wanted to talk with Andrew about today. We were joking around before him. What are we going to talk about today? I just wanted to get Andrew on because Andrew's a great guy, always has great things to say. And I had an opportunity to talk with him. And so we're going to chat. But we are going to begin with something specific. Uh, Andrew has mentioned to me that uh, he wanted to talk about uh, conversations he's had with non-believers. And that's always up my alley. Uh, One of my main shticks on the blog is, you know, the the unbelief of the believers. And then, of course, the believers, the unbelievers themselves as such, explicitly so. But the Mm -hmm. specific question is, he's had conversations what is it that keeps unbelievers away from the church? And obviously, that's an enormous question. Uh, probably could come at it from a hundred different angles. But I'm going to throw that out then to Andrew as our opening salvo here. What what is it that keeps uh, unbelievers from the church? So to use their words, and I am of this opinion, is I think the church as an institution in a lot of ways is irrelevant to them. So what, what do I mean by that? So if if someone says, I want to be healthy, they're going to start exercising, right? And that's going to be a different life they're living. They're going to go to the gym right. or maybe in their house, right. and they're going to start you know, going through the pain and suffering of starting to exercise and getting in the routine, changing their habits, et cetera. So it's a new life. It's a new quality. for, And obviously, it's a quality. It's not their whole life, but it's a quality of their life. The church, to the people I've spoken through, and obviously it's anecdotal, I'm not claiming any sort of statistical anything, is that the common factor though is, is that the church is irrelevant. They're not offering any new life to them. Like why bother going to mass on Sunday if they're just going to spout the same things I hear in the world? In other words, if the church and the world are the same, there's no distinction. What's the point of the church? You have the world. The world's always going to be better being the world than the church is going to be better being the world. And that's yeah. kind of how they say it. So. That's yeah. the first thing I'd say. I mean, that's true. I mean, it always reminded me too when I used to teach at the sales university, where we'd get to talking about marketing and what the identity of the institution was. And I would always say to them, because we're in Pennsylvania, yeah. uh, the problem with the sales is you try to out Penn State, Penn State. But Penn State go. is always going to out Penn State to sales university <laughs> because it's <laughs> Penn State. Okay. Exactly. And you're not. All right? right. And so why not be something distinctively? 
uh, Catholic, uh, right. be a small Catholic liberal arts school to the best of your abilities and all of those various categories and mm-hmm. stop trying to worry about emulating the secular model. Because as we as we've seen over and over with small Catholic colleges and universities, as soon as they drop the Catholic identity and start to emulate the world, then the world looks at them and says, well, you're no different from everybody else. Why should we attend your institution? So it's a very similar phenomenon. And it all sort of revolves around the Catholic identity issue, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'd agree. And I think, and you, you know this better than I would, is I think that this question of the church's relationship with the world, I think is obviously the crucial question of Vatican II with Gaudi Mespes being an obvious example. And, and I think that we haven't figured out how to be in the world and not of the world. And, and that has to do with, because of my philosophy background too, um, I, I always think of excess and defect. I always think that like, it's very easy, you know, Aristotle, I think it's book two of Nicomachean X. Aristotle says, it's not easy to be good. So it's not easy to get that narrow gate that Christ talks about to get, get it right. We're always, you know, like St. Paul says, we're always trying to finish the race. We're always waking up the next day to improve. And I think if you don't have, see that, our life in the faith as that it's not a set of words. It's not these, it's not an excess of doctrine to the point that you have this like massive, like, you know, I don't want to call it AI state, but like kind of this like propositional, like everything is done in here, this like propositional law versus nothing matters, which is defect, right? So nothing matters. You can do whatever you want. God's mercy will clean it up. If you have these, these two extremes, you're, you're irrelevant because you've ripped your identity apart. You've, you've kind of torn yourself asunder in a way. I don't know what you think about that, but that's kind no, of, no, I, I think that, I think that's exactly right. And, and the thing is, is it's, there's, there's two problems with the more, let's put it this way, the more conservative wing of the church, the more right wing mm-hmm. wing of the church. I don't know. Sometimes these categories are kind of, I don't, I'm with you on that. I don't really follow, you know, them, and I yeah. hate to use them and people call me out on using them. You know, chap, you're always full of these little taxonomies, but you know, you have to resort to them on some kind of shorthand. Okay. So on the one hand, you've got the radical traditionalists or traditionalists, so-called mm-hmm who just sort of want to double down on a very, very old form of the institutional church. Now, we'll come back to this in a second, because there are elements of that that I think there's some truth to, but I want to come back to that, especially in the liturgy. But they mm-hmm. just basically say, look, the problem is what, what we've just identified, that the church is trying to emulate the modern world. So let's stop emulating the modern world. Well, what does that mean? Well, that means going back to what we were like in 1890 or 1920 or 1940. Now they deny that that's what they want. The better ones say, no, no, we're not talking about rolling the clock back. We're talking about a a modern form of traditionalism. And yet Mm -hmm. when you press them on it, what they mean is, well, let's go back to the syllabus of errors. Let's reject religious freedom. I mean, Bishop Athanasius Schneider's new credo is new catechism that I just reviewed in Catholic world report. It disagrees with Vatican II on religious freedom, disagrees mm-hmm. with Vatican II on, you know, interreligious dialogue and these kinds of things. So, and, and he's a trad in a sense, in some sense, mm-hmm. right? And so I would say that's not going to attract non-believers back to the church, at least mm-hmm. in my opinion. That's no. not a, a sort of, but then on the other hand, then the other kind of conservative you had are a sort of head in the sand conservatives certain neocons or just regular mainstream conservatives of some kind, I don't know, who, mm-hmm. who just think that we just need to keep muddling along with current structures and the current way of doing things, that the status quo is 
is pretty okay and that the problems are exaggerated. So if we just keep limping along Mm -hmm. as we're going, then everything is going to be fine. And we Mm -hmm. will and the hemorrhaging of Catholics will eventually stabilize and we'll start getting converts again. I think both of those approaches are deeply flawed because they both ignore the fact that that the, the very structures of the church as she presents herself to the world are precisely what the average non-believer out there looks at and says, those things are a turnoff to me. Those things are irrelevant to me. That mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily mean that therefore those things are wrong. Believe, unbelievers can be wrong too, but that is their initial look at the church. Like all of those structures are irrelevant to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I really like what you said there because kind of philosophy is coming out here is so if we take for example i'll go back to the exercise analogy so if you have a person who works out a lot they become very healthy you can see it in them right they may be muscular or toned or they can run for a long time you know whatever they're athletic right or fit we'd say and so in other words their life changes their structure so the structure is changed by the life and right now with the church you have competing structures but I don't know what life we're talking about because I don't th- think we're talking about the same life. Right. I think I think I think the the to your point, and I think I think this is your, I think this is a brilliant point of yours. This is a Christological problem. What does it mean to live a life of Christ? Because that's going to determine the structure. That's going to yes. see. So, and I think that that we we don't we have like that's that's really what this argument boils down to. What does that mean? I don't know what you think about that, but well, I agree because. Yes. The structures have to, in some sense, be transparent vehicles, right. media of Christ and Christ's right. holiness. That's why I it's what I'm on about. Eh? I'm constantly yeah. <laughs> you know, talking about the universal cult to holiness and the saints and people get tired of that. Yeah. It's like, well, OK, well, we uh, we can't all be these holy card saints. That's not what I'm talking about. Look, right. it, it, the, the fact is the church is viewed as lacking authenticity, as lacking a certain existential punch to the solar plexus. Mm-hmm. that it doesn't grip it doesn't bite and mm-hmm. that is a sad commentary it on is. the fact that the church is supposed to be a medium of jesus christ exactly. and there couldn't there, there's nothing more fascinating interesting provocative and world shattering than yep. than than jesus the christ and yet we've turned him into this formula like you said this overabundance of doctrines and so on and 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 sort of clouded it all over and yep. so there's got to be some sort of Revolution of the heart, as Dorothy Day called it, this complete mm-hmm. revolution within the church of holiness, wherein the str- we breathe fire into those equations. That's like, yes. as I like to say, we breathe fire into those equations. Yes. Um, so anyway, do, do you, you want to? Yeah, add to no, that? it makes me think of I it may I may be wrong as verse. It's in Mar- I know it's in Mark seven, but when they're talking about the washing of the hands of the Pharisees, so Mark. If he has that big, like explaining to his readers, like why they wash their hands that way. And then he says, the Pharisees say, you know, why don't your disciples wash your hands? And Jesus says, you know, the Isaiah spoke beautifully of you. You worship me with your lips, but your hearts are kept far from me. Your worship is in vain because you're teaching the doctrines of men or teaching the, yeah, teaching the traditions of men or teaching the doctrines of men, depending on translated. And what struck me with that was you know, we always talk about conversion and metanoia and all these things. Again, it goes back to that life. What, 
what is the life we're called to live by God, and how does that relate to our neighbor in the church? So people say, like oh. you're saying, I can't be a prayer card saint. Well, you're not called to that, probably. You might just be called to the simple prosaic action of not being a jerk to your coworker or you know, helping yeah. your spouse yeah. with something. Like, And if it's God's will, that's all he wants you to do, in my opinion. Like, If it's his will and he wants you to do it, that's it. That's because he's God. Like, you know, so yeah. I so I see that. And then and I also think of how I feel like like when you look at that, you know, they speak of me of their lips. I could there's so much external focus today. Oh, I have to this is the way it means to be Catholic. But what about like that life that people see again when someone's at they're like, oh, they're a healthy person. We don't really see that. No one says, like, wow, that's a like I mean, I'm not no one's ever called me holy. I need to work on this. But you see what I'm saying? Like it's like yeah. I'm so pointing at myself first. It's like where have where have I lived that metanoia? Where have I lived that that so I don't keep Jesus far from my heart? That's the real well, question. Absolutely. I mean, people often say, well, what does this sanctity look like that you're talking? Well, it's it's missional. It's vocation driven. Yeah. And for 98% of the human race, once you reach adulthood, your primary vocational mission is going to be marriage and children and, and, and whatever job you get in order to support that endeavor and the community that you choose to live in to support that endeavor. Okay. And then you, as you raise your family in this regard and you have friends and associates, you get involved in your church and in your local parish and you, and, and, it, but it's still with an eye towards your children, your family, including them in this parish life. That is the vocational mission of 98% of people. So what it boils down to, what sanctity, what breathing fire into these equations that would then be attractive to non-believers, what it boils down to for the average Catholic who is listening to this is to stop compartmentalizing your faith, to stop treating Mass on Sundays as simply an adjunct to everything else that I do in life, some sort of Jesus sprinkles on the ice cream, Jesus gravy on, on the potatoes. All right. That, in other words, you live an utterly secular life 98% of the time. And then there's that one hour on Sunday morning and maybe coffee hour afterwards in which, well, this is now I'm doing churchy things. Now right. we're all guilty. I'm not pointing a finger at anybody. We're, we're all yeah, guilty we're all yep, of that absolutely. compartmentalization. But this, yep. this to me is death to the faith. This yep. precisely chokes out the path of sanctity is this deep compartmentalization that we kind of all engage in. Mm -hmm. And I think that's one of the, one, that's one of the first things that I see. And then there's that 2% of, of Catholics whose missional vocation is something that we would more readily identify as something churchy, right? <laughs> right? Kind right. of like maybe what I'm doing with, you know, Gaudium at Spes 20, what, what you're I'm doing, doing with yep. luminous tradition and yep. so forth. But then I think that can also be true of an increasing number of lay Catholics. What we need are more and more and more examples of lay Catholics married with children or even leaving the single life who are deeply educated in their faith, who educate themselves somewhat theologically, who are then able to, in this, in this day and age, to go on social media uh, and, and, and discuss their faith openly and honestly mm -hmm. and so forth with others. I think that's, that's where we are right now is in this great need for more uh, more lay saints that breathe fire into the equations of the sacraments that would make those sacraments more attractive to, to a non-believer in a lot of ways. I, I agree. I mean, and I think, and I think that one of the things that's been said to me from, you know, non-Catholics I've talked to is they, one of, so like, and I think this is just a product of our culture. When someone comes down with fire and brimstone, they're just going to turn you off. 
Oh Why? man, because yes. there's no consequence. Like they, someone yelling, people yell crazy things all the time. And, it, and if they start saying you're going to hell and then you start pointing fingers at someone, they're going to be like, oh, so you don't do anything wrong. Like, and that's their, their, their number one. Number two is, is that for better or worse, or I know some other historian will have to look at this. There was like a religious sense, especially in the United States. Like I remember growing up, like I would say at least 70% or more people went to church. And you said, oh, well, everyone goes to church and everyone's Christian. But the now as you know, an adult and having reflected on this is how many of them actually had their heart turned towards Christ? I don't know. I'm not God. But the drop off over the last 30 years tells me that there wasn't any fire there. Because even for me, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, you know, I always kind of thought religion was kind of silly when I was a kid. And that's putting it lightly. Because when I asked questions, I'd get the answer of either God works in mysterious ways Grace is sprinkles that comes down from God to make you do things that you wouldn't normally do or to help you. And well, like that question doesn't make sense. And they would make you feel dumb for asking the question. So for example, I had a, a friend of mine who he's not Catholic and we're talking about our faith. And he said, he, uh, I will just say that there was abuse in his past, not with the Catholic church, with a different Christian denomination. And so it's, it obviously that hits he he can't even discuss religion with someone without that coming up so there's a lot of these psychological emotive factors here too that yeah you know it's not just theology here it's like there's there's it, remember we're all whole human persons with emotions and affectations and desire and memory there's all these complex things all interacting that make us respond or not to certain things and so anyway he we were talking and we got to the point about mary with the annunciation and he basically and I'm just going to say what he said. He thought it was kind of like rape. He thought God came down and just forced himself on Mary. And I had yeah. to go through the Greek and show him, no, it's in the middle voice. Calm down. There's a freedom there. It's actually the meeting of God and man. God brought him to her level and said, right. will you be the beachhead through which I bring salvation? And she says, may it come to pass or fiat voluntas tua, you know, however you want to, and, you know, That's let right. it be done. And I think when he saw that, he said, well, why aren't people explaining it that way? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm not, you know, I'm not a priest or, you know, I'm just explaining to you how I understand it as a scholar and yeah. all these things. Yeah. Just I mean, I, I always always tell my students too, uh, after Mary says, fiat voluntas tua, yeah. you know, be it done to me according to thy word. Yep. Probably the most important verse in that entire little story. And I always said this to my students is the one that follows that. It's very short. And it simply says this, and with that, the angel left her. Yep. In other words, that's what the angel was waiting for. Right? <laughs> exactly. The whole point, the whole point <laughs> to the conversation he was having with this young maiden from Nazareth exactly. all right, was, would you please, could you, you know, and, and the holy, the, the father would like, and yep. are you willing? And well, how can this be? Since I know not, well, here's how it shall be. And boom, okay, I'll do it. And boom, exactly. then the angel leaves. That's right. the point of the story. So when it's explained that way, you're right. Um, you know, then then you know it, it becomes more attractive to the non-believer. Now, oftentimes, perhaps the story is explained properly, but a non-believer isn't maybe disposed to hear it or something. Sure. Uh, um, yeah. Uh, there's something to be said about that. Uh, but, but nevertheless, I, actually, can I interject here? Real no, quick? go ahead. Go right. Yeah, ahead. I is one of the things that he said to me was he said, it's because I trust you that I'm able to have this conversation <laughs> with you. And it's because I trust you that you're able to explain this to me and that I'm able to see what you're saying, because what he struggled with 
was how <clears throat> these when he asked these questions either to a religious teacher when he's growing up to his parents they get mad at him if he said what he said to me about yeah. saying it. He, he that's how he understood it. They say, "How dare you? That's blasphemy." But he's like, "Look, it's a legitimate question for me because that's what I see." So I think, I guess, what I got out of it was I was like, "Okay, so if I hear a question that's like, it for us is patently absurd, right? Like, for example, like, how is Jesus really present in the Eucharist, right? I mean, even though we're having a Eucharistic revival here, but like, you see what I'm saying? Like this idea that, um." you know, something that you don't react in a way that's like, how could you be that dumb or like make them feel dumb because you're reacting in a way that that question is so beyond you. Not that you're doing it intentionally, but it's just, it's just, you're yes. hearing this provocative view. I, I, I don't know how I'm, if I'm saying, this no, right, no, you're, you're saying it exactly right. Here's, here's part of the problem. That's why I went back earlier and said, Catholics need to educate themselves. And, and to this day and age, there's no excuse not to be educated. Yep. at least on a very basic level in your faith. There are so many online courses and things that you can take, even for free, get a word on fire book, whatever, watch a Bishop Barron serve. There are just yeah. so many ways you can be better educated in your faith. There's no excuse any longer. And I say that especially of Catholic parents yep. who need to bring their children up in the faith, of Catholic school teachers and not just of religion teachers, and yep. certainly of catechists in the parish who, when asked a question, don't know how to answer it. That's yep. the problem. They don't yep. know how to answer it. So they either resort to very formulaic, you know, answers to these questions that satisfy nobody, or yep. they react in anger, you know, and, and say, well, you know what? That's that's a blasphemous question to even ask the mystery of exactly. God and blah, blah, blah. Exactly. Right. <clears throat> I don't want to paint. Obviously, these are very God bless the people that volunteer to be For sure. Yes, I agree. In, in the church. Yeah, exactly. This yeah. is not a blanket condemnation. Not a blanket but comment, but no. insofar as non-believers do encounter this in the church, correct. Therein therein lies a, a, a very particular problem with regard. So I, I I've said this before and I say it again. The universal cult to holiness is important. That's the baseline. Mm -hmm. But for a modern Catholic living in a country like the United States. Part yep. of your call to holiness is to have your mind as informed by the faith as your heart and emotions, because you are called to give an account of your faith. And this doesn't mean constantly reading books on Catholic apologetics, the latest from Catholic answers or whatever, but maybe that is a very basic sort of baseline. And then mm -hmm. move on from there to read some <clears throat> Decent little theology text. Excuse me, I, I'm choking a little bit here. I, I my coffee went down the wrong pipe just a little bit, uh, but but nevertheless, I think that's that's key. We have to be educated. Uh, mm -hmm. Read for crying out loud. I don't care if it's online or a book. Read something, and this is part of our call to sanctity today, in order to make uh, you know the faith kind of vibrant again to people. Mm -hmm. Well, actually, another uh, fellow <clears throat> Catholic said to me that with luminous tradition, one of the things he appreciated about it was. He knew I had an answer to a question, so he simply pointed someone to something I had podcasted on. So that's another way to solve it too. Like no one's expecting—I know you're not saying this, but no one's expecting anyone to be like the omni. Oh. yeah. Like no. just as long as you know something, God will work with that. I think the question is, and and you know, you can kind of pull a Saint Andrew and say, "Oh, I can introduce you to this person who knows the answer, or this person who can help you." Like yeah. there's. I would argue there's grace in that too, because you're, you're assisting them in their journey, you know? Yeah. You have to know some base. I, I like, I don't want to call anybody out, so I'm not going to mention a name, Yeah, but I know a person 
who was a catechist in a parish teaching <clears throat> first communion class, so young kids. And this person was teaching the class about uh, the Pope mm -hmm. and that he is the vicar of Christ and the successor of St. Peter, and that there's a special chair in Rome in St. Peter's that belonged to Peter, that when the Pope sits on it, he's in Peter's chair and therefore can teach with Peter's authority because he has Peter's chair. So obviously this person had misunderstood the church's teaching about the chair of St. Peter. Mm -hmm. Okay. And um, the pastor finally replaced this person as a catechist because they made these kinds of mistakes over and over. Now, this is an intelligent, educated person. I want to add that an yep. intelligent, educated person who yep. should have known better than right. to say something so outrageously dumb. And this person has no chance of listening to this. So those who worried that maybe they do. <laughs> you know, this person is now quite quite old and actually god bless them has have dementia uh but uh uh and i you know this person is a very nice person but nevertheless geez come on mm -hmm. and and that's that's the kind of thing that's just absolutely absurd that should never take place now that's okay. an outrageous example but you can multiply examples like that over and over uh to a less absurd degree where it's a, a older people asking a catechist or just a, a fellow, a, another Catholic or something. Hey, what about this? What, like mm -hmm. you said, the, the Annunciation story, how come that's not God raping Mary? Exactly. <clears throat> right. And you've got to be able to have something to say to people like that. But beyond exactly. the didactic element, I mean, just I think lifestyle, lifestyle, lifestyle is is so very, very important. It's something as simple as this. You know, it didn't even dawn on me. I go to an ordinary parish and a lot of the people there are very traditional Catholics. Mm -hmm. And a lot of those families are very large families. I mean, mm -hmm. five kids, seven kids. Oh, my goodness. The pastor of the church, Father Eric Bergman, has 10 children. Wow. So <clears throat> I've had visitors to the church say, you know, especially when they're looking at all the kids running around during coffee hour in the parish hall afterwards. My God, this church has so many large families. Mm -hmm. And they saw that as a good thing. Exactly. Okay? Exactly. Out of the ordinary, show me any place else, you know, maybe the local mosque down the street or something. I don't know. But, you know, maybe and I'm not saying, OK, you're wrong if you're a Catholic and you only have two kids or one kid. Or I myself only had one child, so mm -hmm. I'm not here to throw stones at anybody. OK, uh, but still something as simple as that being yeah. open to having large families. That, that boy, as anybody who's ever raised kids knows. That's a that is a sign of sanctity right there, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. having five, six, seven children, some yep. of which, you know, I know some Catholic parents, you know, have large families and some of their children are special needs kids as well. Yep. And yep. so how can I be holy? Well, you're already doing it. You're already doing it. Exactly. That's it, it. right yep. there. And maybe yep. as a church, we need to do a better job of pointing that out to people. Okay, oh, there's I a agree. universal call to holiness, and your particular path to holiness is being a parent of children and a good spouse. And mm -hmm. we need to have more examples of what that kind of sanctity looks like. Yeah, and I think, and I think that I, I think it, two things stand out to me is that the understanding of examples. So examples begets imitation. <clears throat> so if we put the example of Christ in front of people people will see that that's a life to be lived so they can imitate that. And that's where you get obviously the saints, but the saints are even imitators of Christ that give us examples that allow us to see where that fits in for us. Yeah. 
and then it makes me just again think of I think we did this on a previous podcast with Therese's in the beginning of Story of the Soul with the garden and the little daisies and the roses and how perfection consists in doing God's will and being who we want you to be. Even if you need to have the diversity and the to have beauty. So God isn't looking for St. Thomas Aquinas clone roses filling his whole garden here. If you're just a little daisy, like like that's just as beautiful to God because he's, you know, I'm thinking of John 10. I oh, call yeah. my sheep by name. He's saying every single person matters infinitely to him. And I just think that we, we that's not called out enough either to remind people like, hey, maybe you're not like on a podcast or you're not, you know, and no one knows you. No one seems to care about you. God cares. He does. Trust me. Like, and I think oh, yeah. that's not called out enough either, you know? Oh yeah. I think of the example of, of the comparison of an English cottage garden versus a French garden. I used to, in my old house in the Lehigh Valley, when I taught it to sales, I had an English cottage garden in front of my house and I was, mm -hmm. I really was into raising flowers. And the difference between an English cottage garden and a French garden, French garden is very symmetrical. Everything mm -hmm. is in little raised beds and boxes and squares and your roses are over here and your daisies are over there and the mm -hmm. philodendrons are down there and so on. Whereas an English cottage garden is wild, baby. It's wild. So you have the larger flowering plants over here and they're not arranged according to type. They're just willy nilly everywhere. Mm -hmm. But then in in between the bigger plants, you'll see this little tiny yellow flower poking mm -hmm. its head out or over here, this little tiny daisy poking its head out. Yep. And far from being insignificant, those little tiny interspersed chaotic bits and pieces of small flowers are precisely what makes the English cottage garden beautiful yep. uh, and, and, and not just a series of symmetrical things. And, and I think that's the way holiness is in the church. The smallest mm -hmm. little flower yep. is perhaps the best accent piece to the whole thing. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. You got the yeah. big flowers growing there, you know, the DRE, the two priests, <laughs> and you know, the battle axe nun that runs the school. And, and, you know, those, those are the big flowers. And then you get all the little flowers floating yep. around and in including the children, including the children. Yep. But, you know, that's all lifestyle and that's important. And we, you mentioned Eucharistic revival before. Mm -hmm. And I think the Eucharistic revival isn't going to go anywhere so long as it's just preaching to the choir and, yeah. you know, let's just have more Eucharistic adoration in the parish yeah. or let's have, okay, fine. Those are all good things. I'm not disparaging them, but in terms yeah. of reviving interest in the Eucharist, no, that's just to me, just kind of preaching to the choir. People already believe in it. Um, so I look at my parish the ordinary mm -hmm. Father Eric Bergman just put out a promotional video on what Eucharistic revival means in our parish. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that means in our parish is obviously we have a beautiful ordinary liturgy. The Eucharist mm -hmm. is front and center. The Eucharist is the center of our life. And I want to return to that in a second. Yep. Uh, I'll, I'll give you two seconds to speak too. No, this is great. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, but, anyway, <laughs> but then he says this, the point, one of the points to all of mm -hmm. this is to transform mm -hmm. this neighborhood in which we live. We live in the ordinary parish is in a very poor neighborhood of Scranton, the Providence neighborhood, mm -hmm. the poorest neighborhood in all of Northeastern PA. Mm -hmm. And his point is, okay, we're going to move out from the Eucharist. Okay. So now we have a crisis pregnancy center right across the street from our parish run mm -hmm. by parishioners. 
right across the street, we have the ministry of Marcus Daly and his wife, Kelly, who run this thing called Marion Caskets. And he makes very simple pine caskets and pine crosses. And this mm-hmm. is part of a ministry for the church as well. We have a Divine Mercy ministry that's run by a guy named Jerry Bauman and a Divine Mercy Farm run by Matt and, and Jess Nickel in our parish. And we have the Dorothy Day Farm that we run associated with our parish. Soon there's going to be an emergency shelter open by our parish. You see the point. You see the drift. Yep. This so flows out from the Eucharist into the neighborhood in corporal and spiritual works of mercy. Yep. Uh, today, yep. as we speak, there is a funeral going on in my parish for a, a man who was, I think, around 60 years old, uh, just a very humble guy. He had some sort of skin disease where he something like neurofibromatosis, you know, that okay. disease, where you get okay. all these bumps all over your face and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. And uh, his family was kind of fallen away family, Catholic family, uh, but they saw the way in which the parish rallied around this guy. And they were so moved by it that they started attending the Eucharist and the Eucharistic liturgy itself and its beauty captured them. Well, sadly, this, this fellow, his name is Timothy Carr. He passed away last week. His funeral is this morning. I uh, died of cancer, which was the complication of his disease. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I could not make it because I had a, a medical appointment of my own, but my wife informs me that the church was just overflowing with yep. people. Okay. And that had to impress this family even further. Look how they loved him. Yep. Uh, and, and that's, that's the Eucharistic revival right there. Yep. Yep. No, I agree. Well, I think that last line, look how they loved him. I think if people see how you love others and they yes. see that that's the love, that's charity, agape, that's actual, They'll say, where does that life come from? And you point at the Eucharist and you point at tradition, you point at scriptures and exactly. And you say, and that's where it comes from. Do you want that life? And if they say yes, then you say, come like, you know, and I think it's just, we, we over like, we're, I think, I guess what I'm trying to say is, is we could get concerned all about the meaning of words, but meaning has to have some object of reference. It has to be that like it has to be Christ. That's our object of reference. That's the meaning of all things that everything builds on. And I think that we've, we're struggling to capture that. And that's, what's causing this rending. That's what's causing this split. Um, Yeah. You know, I agree. And it helps to stop that rending, to stop that split in order for the Eucharist to truly engender in a, in a massive way, this outflowing of, of charity in the corporal and spiritual works of mercy, the liturgy has to be profound yep. and it has to be beautiful yep. and it has to communicate transcendence and the sacred. Yep. I said at the beginning, you know, that I'm critical of traditionalists, but they've, they've got one thing right. And this is why I can at times be both trad critical, but also trad sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And what they have right is that the liturgy has become diminished in the modern church. Mm-hmm. And I'm not here to mm-hmm. throw all kinds of aspersions at the Novus Ordo and so forth. But the fact is, in most of our parishes in the United States, the mass is performed in an utterly banal way yep. that does not communicate transcendence and the sacred the way that the old liturgy can mm-hmm. uh, and, and often does. Mm-hmm. And I feel that way about the ordinary liturgy. That's why my wife and I first attended this parish. The liturgy, yep. gorgeous. It is transcendent. It is 
sacred and it mm-hmm. just exudes the sacred do mm-hmm. our eucharistic liturgies exude the sacred in a specifically christological way that then provokes us right to charity exactly and i think and i think it not only provokes us it's it's you're there entering into the trinitarian of life of god through christ with the community as one through the priest and, and the presence of the Eucharist. Like it's, there's a, there's a, like, we, we don't think about that. Um, we often think of ourselves as, oh, I need to be holy or, you know, I need to be, well, you're in a community, a mystical body of Christ that look, no one's perfect, but like where you're being called is, it's like, in a way it's relative in the sense that it's for others. It's going that to your point, provoking that charity. It's going out to others. It's, yeah. you know, I, I remember once, I was at dinner. This is years ago. I, I took, we took a friend of ours to dinner and um, it was the first time we like really hung out like outside of like where, where we knew each other. And um, it was, I was sitting there with my wife and he's watching us talk with each other. And Cynthia and I are just going back and forth and talking. And he, he, he goes, can, can I just pause you for a second? I go, I go, what? And he goes, I've never seen two people talk like that to each other. And we're saying they're like, this is just, but then I realized that our world is so nihilistic, so attacking, so judgmental, so like, and judgmental, yeah. and I mean, in like the worst, <clears throat> you know, like, so that all of a sudden when he saw someone who was genuinely trying out of, you know, obviously charity with my spouse to listen and just basic stuff, like listen to her, what was she saying? Okay. And I respond, she responds. And there's this back and forth. He thought it was like something from another world. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and it's so yeah. and that's the simplest thing. We're just sitting at dinner having that. And to this day, that has had a proud a profound effect on him. To this day. And and I and then and that also builds trust. Why does it build trust? You know, the same person has confidentially said to me, you know, I'm not Catholic, but if you ever like when I wherever I'm in the area, if you brought me to church, and this is how he said it, he said, I'm willing to trust you wherever you take me, because I know I'm not going to get hurt because you care about me. Think about that for a second. Yeah. Like that is such a loaded statement that I think we as Catholics don't think about these things because again, we uh, generally, especially you know, you're, we're involved as you said these ecclesiastical debates, the sprinkles, like the cake, the cake is is rotting, and we need to stick. You know, with Christ said, "Without me, you could do nothing." He's the vine, we're the branches. Like we need to f- get this Christological life back within ourselves pointing at myself again and with everyone else. And and then we can, you know, move back out because that's, what's going to call people in only he can call people in through us. Like we of ourselves can do nothing. And I just, does that make sense? Like, am I making any sense? It makes perfect sense. And it it just, it cuts to the core of why I'm I'm somewhat critical. I'm not just critical of the traditions. I'm I'm critical of very progressive Catholics as well. And to a certain extent of, 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 to the extent that he goes along with progressives, Pope Francis, although he's a complex figure. But anyway, uh, because what what the non-believer turns to the church for is precisely a counterweight to the culture, right. a exactly. counterwitness to the culture, a prophetic witness against the culture. And that's I mean, I'm not saying against, against, against everything modern. I mean. The specific, like you began with, if the church is simply emulating the world, a worldly person will find nothing of interest in the church. Right. They will seek out the church when their own life has reached a crisis, a crisis, a mm-hmm. moment of decision. I'm going to take this path 
or this path. I know my path right now is more materialistic, nihilistic, not oriented towards spiritual things. Mm-hmm. But I want my life to be oriented towards spiritual things. Where mm-hmm. do I find spiritual things? Who can Nothing. feed me spiritual things? Oh, I know. I'll go down to this Catholic church. And then the first sermon I hear is, I'm okay. You're okay. It's nice to be nice to the nice. Exactly. And you're just fine where you are. And don't exactly. worry about anything. God loves you where you are. And, and the person said, well, that's all well and good. But I got that at my local Rotary Club. I, I, I exactly. don't. I don't need that from you. What I want to know is, why should I bother attending your church? What is special exactly. about your sacraments? What, exactly. are, what are they giving me in a sense? And yep. what I'm seeking is something damn different. Exactly. So I'm saying to Catholics out there, this is why I'm critical of progressive Catholics. And they don't understand sometimes. It's because they undercut the call to holiness. They mm-hmm. undercut the path to sanctity and salvation. And that's what people are looking for out of the church. They're yep. not looking for comfort and a pat on the back. Although mm-hmm. Some people who are crushed, demoralized, broken, damaged people, you begin with the pat on the back. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about those. I'm talking about your average secularized, materialistic person who wants something more out of life. Mm -hmm. And they come to church and they don't get it. And they need to see something sacred in the liturgy as well. I agree. And I, you know, I was thinking when you're talking there, I was just thinking about when, you know, Christ says, you know, you know, whoever wants to be my disciple um, you know, take up his cross and follow me daily. Um, I, you know, we often think of the cross as like, oh, well, I have this real jerk at work that I have to deal with. And like, I have yeah. to, you know, deal with this person. It's it's always externalized in a sense. Whereas I feel like the first question is that the cross that we're carrying is, is how are we crosses to others? How do, like, what is our prime, like I'll point at myself, what is my primary flaw that's a cross to those around me so that I, I in carrying it, that I'm I'm going to be falling, but I'm begging God through penance. This is where penance and mortification, I would argue, come in, is like trying to work on that to kill that in me so that I can be more united to Christ for the sake of others. And I think like, if you look at mortification and penance as simply kind of like you know, a materialist, like, oh, I'm just going to impose tons of things on it. Or you look at it, you know, like, a, oh, the, only the people in the beginning of the spiritual life need mortifications and penance. Like, well, then why did St. Paul says he's struggling to finish the race? And this guy's like, yeah, lots of the Gentiles. Jeez. I think he was still dealing with mortification and penance. So, yeah, it, it's I'm like, stuck in that phase. I've been stuck in that phase for 65 years, it seems yep. like. <laughs> yep. But let's I want to come back to the liturgy, too, because and I agree yep. with everything you just said there about the need for purgation and penance and so forth. Um, it's not white-knuckled asceticism and white-knuckled exactly. Penance. It's the natural response that one has when one approaches the holy. Right. Uh, Moses taking off his, you know, taking off his shoes and so on, uh, you know, feeling like, okay, I'm coming into the presence of something sacred and I'm not quite ready to be in the presence of something that's sacred. Now, mm-hmm. that's the, the, there's a fine line. The sacred... To you know, to borrow the phrase from Rudolf Otto, is both fascinams et tremendum. It mm. should fascinate and therefore attract us to it, mm-hmm. and not put into us such a fear uh, and loathing about ourselves that we feel judged by this mm-hmm. sacred and how do you know. It's a great idea, though. Of course, it's a great idea. You know, <laughs> it's my idea. <laughs> you know. 
Okay, it's it, it fascinates and attracts, but also in Rudolf Aldo's phrase, tremendum, uh, from which we get the word tremble, tremendous, yeah. mm-hmm. tre- that it, it creates in us an internal, not servile fear or or or, or sheer terror. Fear of the Lord. Yep. yep. But but that that sense of goosebumps rising on your arms and the hair rising up on the back of your neck as you approach something so out of your frame of reference that it's going to burst your wineskins. It's going to bust you wide open, but in a great way, in a way that's finally going to allow you to blossom. Yep. Does our sacred liturgy impart that so that when, I mean, you go into an Eastern Orthodox church and you're immediately aware. Yeah. I'm in this. And you go into an old fashioned like Catholic church with mm-hmm. beautiful stained glass and Gothic architecture and mm-hmm. statues and all that. And you realize in votive candles and you realize, oh, you know, a hush comes over you and you realize I'm in the presence of something sacred. You walk into some of these modern churches, churches in the round that look like Boy Scout meeting camps. And, you know, it's like, okay, I, I'm going to sit here and have a coffee while I ponder the day's events, but it doesn't instill in you fascinam et tremendum. And then mm-hmm. the liturgy comes up and it doesn't either. There has to be that sense of I'm entering into heaven or the antechamber of heaven. That's mm-hmm. that is beauty. I mean, that's Bishop Barron. We have to lead with that kind of beauty, but a, a mm-hmm. sanctified beauty. Yes. I think, I think qualifying with the sanctified beauty, because otherwise we'll, two things come to mind is first it could devolve into simply ascetics. So now you're back to the externals. Right. You don't want that. So I think I like that qualification. And then the second thing that came up when in my mind while you were talking was, is I, I sit there and I'm like, this all sounds great. Like I'm, I'm all with you on everything you said, but how do we do that? And and I'm not flipping the script here on you. I'm, I'm asking this almost rhetorically. It's like, I feel like, yeah. I feel like it's, there's, th- there's a lot of layers here where like, for example, one layer can. So I'm thinking, for example, the like maybe you have a priest in your parish who like would not be on board with what we just said, or think it's just oh, it's too frilly, and you know that's that's all nonsense. Oh yeah. But then on the other hand, you could have the opposite situation where there's lay people who they don't want that because they want their their jam band, and I'm not, you know, oh, I mean, yeah. like I'm talking like full on <clears throat> jam band, and and that's because that's how they've been doing it for however many years, and that's how this parish does, you know, that type of thing. So I think. I think that type of institutional bureaucratic like sludge to put a better word in, I don't know how probably a bad metaphor, but like a block obstacle, you know, like I think that's what frustrates people too. And I don't know how to do, I have no idea. Well, it frustrates all of us. Yes. It frustrates those involved in liturgical reform. It frustrates priests. Right. It frustrates a lot of people. Here's what's lacking in the church. And I'm just going to be blunt leadership. Right. It has to come from the bishops. And yep. so when they said, we're going to have a Eucharistic revival, you know what I thought to myself? Yeah, right. Right. Meanwhile, three fourths <laughs> yeah, of the American right. Catholic yeah. bishops are OK with Father Skippy Toes up there yep. blessing the crowd with his guitar, as we saw in Chicago. All right. Under Cardinal Supich, the priest who ended it blessed the congregation at the end, raising his guitar. And uh, dear Lord Jesus, we rock as you roll and I bless you, blah, blah, blah. I mean, are you kidding me? Okay, that that priest was not disciplined by by the diocese is insane. And and what it because what it communicates is that Cardinal Supich doesn't care. 
doesn't mm-hmm. care about the state of the liturgy in his day. And I don't want to just pick on Cardinal Supich. It's across the board. You yep. and I probably both know priests. I certainly get emails I, from them yep. all the time. Yep. A priest who says, I wanted to start doing mass ad orientum. I wanted to institute altar rails and communion on the tongue mm-hmm. while kneeling. Now, I'm not saying that that's the only way that the sacred can be expressed. I'm saying these are ways that priests were trying to reinstitute some elements of a sense of this is not a Boy Scout fellowship meal we're having. Right, exactly. This is something sacred. And this was their way of doing it, only mm-hmm. to have their bishop say, no, you can't. Right. You can't. We have yep. to have uniformity in the diocese, and it has to be versus populum. Okay, fine. But you can't do the altar rails. Oh, and by the way, you have complaints coming into my office all the time about your new Gregorian chant choir. That's yep. got to go, too, yep. because the parishioners don't want that. All right. Yep. So what you need in that case is like a Bishop Conley from Lincoln, Nebraska, my buddy, my friend, who I went to seminary with, who does mass ad orientum himself. All right. And therefore communicates to his fellow priest. Yeah. You know what? And you can, too. And maybe you should. They don't right. all. all right. um, maybe most of them don't. But that's 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 the kind of leadership that we need out of our yep. bishops. And we're mm-hmm. just not getting. So everything that you and I have said here today, we live in a church of priests, bishops and so on. And we can we can complain all we want about mm-hmm. that fact. We need more late, but it, ha- it has to come in the Catholic Church. Change comes from both below and from above. Right. It has to have both elements. Yes, uh, I Yes, and it's a, it, 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 they're they're correlative, and like and to your point is if the priest goes and does things, and then the bishop gets complaints from the lay people, the priest is going to back down because now the bishop's involved, and you get the chancer, you know, and then every and everyone gets all like hands start waving, and oh my gosh, you know, and it's just it's I feel like it, and it's frustrating because like to kind of tie it to our earlier point about how people come into the church, I am honest with people about the interfighting because i'm like look i if they decide to join the church and they think it's going to be because especially coming in they think oh people are going to be holy they're going to be great and they come in and see what we deal with all the time what we're just talking about and they're going to be in shock so i call i kind of have to prep them and i even you know i'll even show them some of the videos from both sides i'll say here's what they say and not you know and i and what's it called steel man their their arguments say this is what they believe this is why they say it this is you know and but the thing is, is like that's just an additional obstacle again to even bringing people in. So by creating obstacles within, we're creating obstacles for those without. Because again, to your point, leadership. No yeah. one wants to step up and and lead. They want to just know, yeah. And, and with regard to lay people complaining about things, yeah. Um, okay, in any given parish on any given weekend, you have probably at least three masses: a vigil mass on Saturday and two on Sunday. Sometimes four yep. masses. Yep. All right. Well, okay, leave leave the other three masses, just three of the masses or two of the masses exactly as they've always been so that yep. the St. Louis Jesuit crowd gets their gentle woman and their Yahweh yep. you are near to guitar yep. to their heart's content. Okay, <laughs> gentle woman. Yeah, yeah. We sang that at church last week. God help us. All right. She was anything but a gentle woman, as the song implies. Yeah. Uh, uh, but anyway, I, I digress. Uh, then have one mass be a more solemn Gregorian mm-hmm. chant, bells and whistles and incense and, right. you know, and, and all that kind of an odd orientum and so forth. So yep. and then let the chips fall where they may. Let's mm-hmm. see which mass becomes more, in a sense, popular, mm-hmm. which mass becomes more well attended, mm-hmm. which mass sees those envelopes filling up. 
the all right exactly envelopes believe because after all this is what bishops often fear (laughs) the envelopes flying because that's what they get in their email box right look i've given ten thousand dollars to this church in the past five years and you're not going to see another nickel if father jim john over there keeps on with what he's doing (laughs) you know okay well that's going to get your attention because exactly church needs a new roof after all so yeah (laughs) Well, I, I, it's funny. I'm laughing because that's exactly how it is. And it's so funny that it, it like, yes, that these, like, I guess, I guess what I got thinking about, this is a, I'm not, this stays on this topic is, is like the other question about this Christological life and what we're dealing with the liturgy is, is the question of what is the church? So let me give you an example. I think this is during the second Vatican council. Um, uh, was his name Wozneski? Who was he? Was the cardinal at the time? Uh, Stefan was Wozneski. I don't want to pronounce his name properly. Uh, uh, now, now you've got me screwed up. Uh, yeah. From you mean the, from Poland? Yes, from Poland. Yes, thank Bushinsky. you. Bushinsky. Bushinsky. Yes. Thank you. So he got up and he says, "Look, one of the things that is interesting is we're talking about the church in the sense of clerics, parishes." In like kind of these like institutional things. He goes, "What about like in Poland where the communists have wiped all that out? Like we're just like." people how do we deal with that question and i think that with the decline of these institutions the closing that's an important part of that question that i think ties into this question about liturgy and in a christological life and sanct the qualified sanctity of sanctified beauty like how like to, and i'm kind of flipping the script on you i apologize it's your podcast no but, but this it, is it, a great it, point go on yes so like how i guess my point is is we need to answer the question about what is the church like, like, kind of like, it's yes. not just in a, so go ahead. No, uh, I'm, I'm sorry. I keep interrupting. I'm just agreeing with you out loud. Oh, okay. So yeah. No, I, it, you it, interpret it, that as me interrupting. No, this is me. Oh. Like, yeah. Amen, brother. You preach it, boy. <laughs> okay. I didn't, I didn't know. I didn't want to. So yeah, no, I just feel like, and to me, like if, if you take Poland as the example, it's obviously not those things. Again, those things follow from something else. So what is that something else? And now you could say the mystical body of Christ. Okay, well, what is that? How, what are our teachings on that? And like, how does that work? And like, what, you know, because people are going to ask that question because as these parishes shut down, if the trajectory stays the same, then people, you know, you're going to have people who all of a sudden they're going to be like, well, why, why did I go to mass every Sunday? You know, I maybe listened to a couple of sermons on YouTube. Like, why is this gone? And that, that shock for them, you know, are they going to stay? Are they going to go? Again, it, it just speaks to this, well, we're shifting gears a little bit in the sense that we began by talking about how can the church be more attractive to unbelievers, to secularized people who are maybe mm-hmm. outside of the church. And that's why I emphasized beautiful liturgy, uh, educated Catholics being you know, able to answer. But now we're talking a little bit about how do we keep Catholics who are in the fold in the fold? Well, and also for the non-believers, just interject real quick. The non-believers say, well, the, if the institution is so true, why is it shutting down? Why is it going to pot? So I also think it ties in there because then when I've explained to them the little that I know about the mystical body of Christ, and we're all connected to Christ as the head through living the life of Christ in communion with the church, like they kind of got that. They're like, okay, so then for them, what was actually, no, I think about it, what was provocative then about the mystical body of Christ was it wasn't an institution. It was something organic. So then all of a sudden they're like, okay, now I'm listening. So you're saying that the Catholic church has a doctrine about this mystical body of Christ that begets this institution in the sense that they use these materials to bring down through the ordinary forms, 
the grace of Christ. Yes. And so I think that's. And this is key too. If you're a priest and you're in a parish and you can't introduce high liturgy of bells and smells, it is possible to have very low liturgy uh, that is extremely effective Yep. And, and profoundly, in fact, some of the masses I've attended in my life that brought tears to my eyes and changed my life in, in important ways were some of the lowest masses imaginable in somebody's yep. living room or in, in a makeshift office at a retreat or something like that. And there was no music. Yep. There was yep. no incense, no bells and smells. And yet it was quiet. It was simple. It yep. was direct. And the difference is in those settings, there was faith. Uh, there's no that 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 the best liturgies are liturgies that are expressions of an evangelical commitment to Jesus Christ as our Lord. Yep. And I, I I'll give two examples of this just to show that I'm not simply all about high liturgy. High liturgy. High liturgy to me is important. It's important mm-hmm. as an enticement through beauty to a certain kind of non-believer. But even that, like you said, it's just empty ritualism if there's no faith underneath of it. Right. I attended the Newman Center at the University of Nebraska when I was a freshman at the University of Nebraska in 1978. Mm-hmm. The Newman Center there was filled to the gills with young people. It was just busting, it seems, so much so they had finally had to build a new church. And it's a gorgeous, new, beautiful church if you've ever been there. Uh, but it still remains to this day the greatest faith community that I've ever been involved in. And yet the liturgy there was all, it was typical late 70s. I mean, there was nothing, mm-hmm. there were no liturgical abuses. I want to be straight about that. The priest was very orthodox, and that's key. Mm-hmm. And I'll get back to that in a second. All right. But it was all guitar music. It was all folk music. It was all St. Louis Jesuits and tambourines yep. and guitars. Yep. And yet you could cut the faith in that room with a knife. It was so thick. Mm-hmm. And it remains to this day the greatest greatest experience of inten- intentional Catholicism. So what, what what was it? It was a parish, a Newman Center, that mm-hmm. was evangelical in a way that addressed the crisis moment of a certain age group, a certain demographic, 18 to mm-hmm. 22-year-old, highly secularized little college kids, mm-hmm. okay, who were seeking something spiritual. Enter this vibrant priest, yep. okay, who then catalyzed, catalyzed around himself. This, it, it, this is why Lincoln to this day has all these vocations coming out of the woodwork because all kinds of young, and I went to the seminary because of this and so on. It, it, it was vibrant. So the liturgy was a guitar mass liturgy. And yet there it was. And the yep. reason why it fed us was because the faith was already there. Segway then when I was at Fordham getting my doctorate, I once blogged about this. A friend of mine said, I want you to come to my church. All right. Uh, my friend was Baptist and you and uh, they I, we went to this little storefront uh, church of African-Americans, mainly, but some Latinos. And it, it was like an AME church. And the worship was, uh, you know, g- guitars, electric guitars and drums and, mm-hmm. you know, people getting slain in the spirit, very Pentecostal, dancing around in the aisles, uh, arms raised in the air all this kind of stuff. It was wild, baby. It was wild. All right. And, <laughs> and I was there, you know, a pinched up little turd that I was thinking, oh, well, I don't know about this. And yet I was like touched to my core by this thing. And, you know, towards the end of it, this great big, huge woman came bounding down the aisle. I was standing in the back, like some sheepish little guy. And man, she grabbed me and gave me this big hug and smothered me. 
All right. And uh, dragged me up front and, and said, we're going to pray for this guy. And then put me down. They all they all came up, put hands on my head. And then we had cookies and punch and stuff afterwards. It remains to this day one of the greatest encounters I had with mm-hmm. real Christian people yep. worshiping a form that I thought, boy, this is bizarre world. Mm-hmm. It's not my cup of tea. It still isn't my cup of tea. But that's mm-hmm. that's the point, though. I was mm-hmm. still touched by it to my core because there was faith there. There right. was faith there. That's that's the fire in the equation. Exactly. And that's what I'm on about with regard to sanctity. It is yep. lived out faith. Live it however. I don't care. I can't tell you how to do it. All right. Live your faith, but have faith. Yep. And if the yep. parish is vibrant, and that's why I love the ordinary. The, the liturgy there is gorgeous. That wouldn't have kept me there. Mm-hmm. What kept me there was the fire in the community. Yep. Yep. No, I think you're dead on. And that what that actually shows is that there's a, a correlation. So you have the faith begets certain types of expressions. So you'll have like in your case, the mass of the lady prayed on you, or then maybe you have a beautiful yeah. Latin mass or Eastern Orthodox, or I'm thinking yeah. Greek Melkite I've been to like you yeah. gorgeously, but then, but then also that expresses so the faith expresses it and then the expression speaks back to the faith for those who see it like you did well this expression doesn't like because you said like this isn't what i express it but all of a sudden their faith came through that expression and spoke to you and that's what got you you know what i'm saying like yeah so i think that's that's you're exactly right i think it's and, we and, see and I, what that. i'm also saying is that one of the reasons why most novus ordo liturgies in most parishes seem so disattached unattached Yep. to the real lives of the people there Yep, is because for whatever reason, I'm not going to blame the lay people. I'm not going to blame the priests. I'm not going to blame exactly. the bishops. It's a collective yep. failure, Yep, a collective failure. No, I completely the agree. Faith life in that parish is lacking. I and agree with that. Whatever yep. reason, it hasn't been lit on fire. Yep. And therefore, the liturgy itself comes to be this pro forma thing that I do on Sunday mornings to fulfill an obligation because, okay, let's give it its due. People are at least doing that. They're realizing right. I need, I need God in my life. I know mm-hmm. I want God in my children's lives. I'm going to bring them to church, mm-hmm. but it's, an, it's on a very minimalist sort of plate. Let's put mm-hmm. it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, and I think too, the, the other struggle people have is like, and I see this from people my age is they're, you know, they're, faithful Catholics will go to church on Sunday, but one of their frustrations, and I, I would argue this would apply as well to the non-believers too, is they they expect, for example, at the homily that they're going to learn something about the gospel, that, that that's their one time that week that they're going to hear from the priest who they believe right. is the authority, who's going to tell them something that's going to feed their faith for the week. So well, obviously it speaks to the parts of the homily, but the thing is, to your point, if the community lacks faith, then that homily is going to be the, what you said earlier, which I'll summarize is Jesus loves you. Be good. See you next week. And so yeah. then, I, <laughs> so if they hear that all the time, they're going to feel like, well, what about my faith? They'll start to struggle with it. And until, you know, I had some friends who were in the church who were struggling with their faith until, you know, they got introduced to some saints like Augustine is a good example of this. Where all of a mm-hmm. sudden they're like, wow, he had the same questions I did. He dealt with similar problems that I do. And then now that faith gets reignited because they're like, oh, it's n- I don't have to doubt this anymore. I can live this because he lived it and or Christ dealt with this. And that getting that faith on fire and that constant feeling yeah. of that. Yeah. 
I agree. And you know what? I don't, I don't, that is so true, Andrew. Everything you just said is so true. And it feeds on itself. Yep. Um, and just as a sign, you know, I'm not being judgmental here. Oh, those horrible parishes that are out there. If only they were as good as my parish. No, <laughs> because the deal is this. That's why I go to this parish. Because yeah. when I go to a standard suburban sort of bourgeois American parish, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm like a chameleon. I Me become too. just like it. All yep. of a sudden, I'm sitting there in the back of yep. church looking at my watch, wondering what I'm going to get at the dinosaur struggle yeah. afterwards and saying, okay. Um, and I, I, I'm suddenly, am now, okay, this is just a, there you go mass, you know, there yep. you go. You've done it. Uh, yep. Okay. Bye-bye. Yep. Uh, and I'm annoyed if the recessional hymn goes longer than two verses. Cause I want to get the hell out of there, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Guilty as charged. charged so exactly. The, the point is, is there's something structural going on here? Uh, in in the ethos of our parishes, mm-hmm. I think, in other words, you scratch the surface of an average parish. There's faith there to be tapped into. I agree. There is there is sanctity and greatness there. Yep. Just waiting to be tapped into, and I think a lot of priests know it too. But there's some kind, and I don't know the answer to this, Andrew. I don't. Maybe some listeners do. I what the magic formula is. Maybe there isn't a magic formula. Well, I, I actually think one thing that I've realized is I think they're afraid of the cost to do a good thing has a cost. Yeah. And and I think they're afraid that if they, once you scratch that surface again, it's, it's would you either follow Christ or you don't ultimately. Right. I know we're all struggling with it, but we'll, we'll take it ultimately. When you scratch that surface and you start moving towards Christ, you're going to be moving away from something else. This, boring or whatever, because that's not Christ, because we've, we've kind of established that. So as you move along that, we'll call it this, this spectrum, right? Like colors, you're moving along the color spectrum towards Christ. You're moving away from that. And you're going to lose those people who don't want to move with you. And they don't, yeah. I think they don't want the conflict. I think they're afraid that any conflict is bad, but then why are we struggling to be good? Because that's conflict with ourselves. Like I just find that that's, that's right. That's why you're losing into. young people because there's nothing yep. challenging about it. There's not. Yep. We're right back to the beginning then, exactly uh, of what I call status quo Catholicism. Yep. Because we're afraid of losing people, we're not yep. going to call them a pie. We're not going to tap into that reservoir of sanctified greatness that is just waiting to be tapped into. Mm-hmm. We're not going to do that because we're afraid that only about thirty-five percent of the parish wants to be so tapped. Right. <laughs> right. The other exactly. 65% are going to start to trickle out the door. Well, yep. newsflash, they're already trickling, they're trickling out, the door. out the door. Exactly. And the exactly. point is that those who remain are there because they want to be there. Yep. And they want to, you see this all the time. All right. Suddenly a vibrant priest comes into the parish and the parish lights up and is mm-hmm. on fire. And parishioners are so excited. Oh my God, we've got father, blah, blah, blah. And he's mm-hmm. doing this and he's doing that. And I don't care what the liturgy is or whatever there people are. And then all of a sudden, three years later, a uh, father uh, is being switched to uh, uh, <laughs> five parishes in central PA. Yeah. And you're now getting the uh, 80 year old retired priest as your interim pastor. And then exactly. Yep. Now, you know, you got to love bishops. That's their choices. Right? Yep. <laughs> right. okay. As vocations diminish, this is what they're left with. And yep. so once again, I don't know what the magic formula is, but you're absolutely right. Um, 
yeah and it it's tragic to me because i i often think you know again i for me i always think about like well how when i appear before christ is he going to say well done my good and faithful servant or is he going to say well andrew you did all right but i mean probably that but my point is this is or is he going to say you completely missed the mark right so there's this constant thing in my mind like whether that's salutary or not is a different question but i think that like what that means though with this is that there are other people like that too they just don't know how to go about it and again when you scratch that surface and you start going in that direction look christ had conflict like look at like read the gospels i mean seriously like he was dealing with institutional conflict his entire uh ministry, during his whole ministry yeah, i'm positive yeah. and his in his private life, he probably had injustice in pay, you know, all the things that regular people deal with, you know? So like, I oh, think yeah. that like, and so I think that like, what, what confuses me to your point of, well, they're leaving anyway, is why not scratch the surface? Just yeah. do it. You have God behind, if you really believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God, and you really believe that this is the path to salvation, the, the, the like Jadic Vatican II says, the prime yeah. path to salvation. Well, then just do it. What do you have to lose? You're gonna. We're all gonna die anyway. Like it's to me, it's a dumb <laughs> bet. Like, and why, what are you betting on? Why are you betting on the world? You know it's finite. It's obvious. So why wouldn't you bet on that? That that's the part that doesn't make sense to me. It's Especially like, since it's, it's more fun. Exactly, more it is more fun. <laughs> and not <laughs> only that, that, you might take a hit at first and lose like sixty-five percent of your parishioners, and only thirty-five exactly. percent remain. But that thirty-five percent is going to ignite a fire that's going to attract more people exactly. back into that parish in the long run. Exactly. Now, come on. I think a lot of priests know this, but like I said, there, there are just so many factors working against us right now. Exactly. And we're so swimming upstream against the culture. That and a priest, a, a priest is just one person swimming against this tide. Yep. And you're almost, we're almost asking priests in modern parishes to do the impossible uh, in in a lot well, of ways. I, I mean, I think, I think here it, it it well, I think I think it is it can be looked at as impossible. But again, just from my perspective of it, is that like, look, I think it if it's your like start small, like with anything, like to your point, the mass. Just just yeah. go to the bishop, go to someone, and say whoever you have to. I don't know because I'm not a priest, but like go to someone, and say like like if I was, you know, in my, in my job, I'd be like, Hey boss, I want to do X. Here's the reason I want to do X. Like, can we do a small investment in this? In fact, I did this at one of the jobs I was at. I, I wanted to do something that was kind of innovative. And so my boss at the time who was kind of friends with, I went to him and said, Hey, look, like this is the big kind of vision I have that's innovative, but like, I understand that's a significant investment. So let's just do this small part of it and see how it goes. And then we can adjust as we go down the road, right? Like normal, yeah, anything. Yeah. And so that seems to me a pretty obvious thing to do. And then what happened was in this particular case is the, the little pilot proved itself and it ended up being this great project that helped a lot of people, at, you know? And so I think that's all they need. So I would, I'd say if we take it all at once, yes, it's impossible. But if we broke it down into like, okay, let's just say, just get one mass that's actually doing it right. We're going to do one little mass, right? Exactly. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Exactly. Hmm. Exactly. Hmm. One little mess, right? Hmm. Yes. Hmm. Uh, yeah, we could do it. And, right. and I remember that like 30 years ago now, that move, maybe even longer, that movie came out based on a true story about the math teacher in an inner city school that wanted to prove that he could teach calculus 
to a, a bunch of poverty stricken, you know, kids from the hood. Uh, oh, and like, it, oh yeah. Well, oh, gosh, I, it, I can't think of the name of the movie now. It was based okay. on a true story and yep. he got resistance, 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 but he stuck to, but he did, he got them to do one thing. Well, calculus. And then they all nailed, they nailed their college entrance exams yep. uh, or some kind of calculus major standardized test. And the, the people that were looking at were so dumbfounded, they accused him of and his students of cheating. So yeah. they made them take the test all over again. And they did even better the second time around, proving oh, that what he nice. and it was transformative to these kids lives because they were shown their greatness. They yep. were shown that they that, you know, that their neighborhood was not their destiny, that yep. they had greatness within them. And he called them up to greatness and, yep. and they achieved it. And yep. we need to do likewise in our church, yep. you know? Well, uh, and I it, and I also think, I think the thing is true is when they, let's say, let's hypothetical, we'll like go here. Let's say the priest does this. Well, not only is that going to be attractive to the people who want the Christ life, we'll call it. The people from the outside that we're all talking to, when I say, hey, come to this mass and they see the sanctified beauty, they see that faith, that's an opportunity for them to be lit on fire to then you see what I'm saying? Like, like it all yeah. feeds into everything. And I think, and again, so it's not just simply, you know, like we're saying, it's not simply just for Catholics who still believe it's also for those who don't believe who would, could come in based on creating the right environment, you know, and, uh, for them to, for them to be lit on fire too. And I just, yeah. and again, it just, yeah. it just seems to me like it's, and I get like, and I, and I think too, a lot of it is historic, like, for example, like you'll have like, oh, well, this parish has always done this this way for this many years and blah, blah. And it's like, I'm getting tired as a younger person of hearing that. It's like, listen, I understand it was done this way for X amount of years. I get it. But that doesn't mean it needs to be done that way forever. Like, like you see what I'm saying? Like, and, and if this is yeah. a vibrant parish with life, circumstances may change that cause you to respond differently. It doesn't change who you are. It's you're responding to what's changed around you. You see what I'm saying? So I think that gets conflated sometimes where it's like, oh, oh that really does. Yeah, it yeah. does. And the, I think that's a key element that you just identified there at the end, which is you, you've got to be able to identify how things have changed. Right. Exactly. And, and, the, and the parish has to evolve with how things have how things have changed. Yep. Um, absolutely. But anyway, we've been going on now for about an hour and 10 minutes or so. Uh, okay. so she would wrap it up soon, but are there any other thoughts, Andrew, that <laughs> Andrew you might thoughts? have Andrew um, deep thoughts from Andrew Nyadek. Yeah. I like that deep, deep thoughts. thoughts. Um, <laughs> um, I mean, I think that like, I, I think regardless of what the parish priests choose or the bishops choose or the hierarchy, yeah. inevitably it's, it's just going to keep going the direction it's going because if nothing changes, nothing changes. Right. So not to be tautological, but like if, if they don't do anything and it's still going in this direction, there's no motion that's going to push it in another direction. Right. And now you can say God may yeah. push it, but then that's doing exactly what we're saying. Meaning Christ, that faith will set on fire to change the direction of things, which I hope it does. Um, but if it doesn't, then again, it goes yeah. back to how do we explain the church? How do we understand ourselves? I.e., what is the church in light of Poland? You know, communist Poland is a good example. And then how do we, in light of that, dealing with these structural debates about, which again, I think reduced to what is the Christ life? Yes. How do we respond to non-believers to tell them what the Christ life is? That's kind of how I'd 
and how everything is local. Yes. I mean, it's, it's boots on the ground. It's like, exactly. you know, so I'm, I'm, you know, one of the, one of the things that strikes me over and mm-hmm. over and over again mm-hmm. is the abject failure. Uh, and once again, not to be tautological, as, as you pointed out, you know, uh, but the abject failure of bureaucratic solutions, yep. a big picture solution. So for example, exactly. my point is this, if you were to go to the, to, to the average parishioner, if yep. there is such a thing, in an average Catholic parish in the United States, if there is yep. such a thing, and I think it probably right. is, a sociologist with <laughs> right. some acumen in these regards could figure this out. And yep. you were to ask them, what do you think of the synod on synodality? Yep. They would probably say, say again, what? The synod on what? <laughs> exactly. Oh, there, we had a meeting on meetings. It was in right. Rome. It was a big meeting about having meetings, and we had it in Rome. Uh, no. And it's how the church needs to have more meetings. I know. Uh, and so what do you think? Well, I, I had no idea it was even going on. Sorry. Right. Or, or to bring it back to the United, Eucharistic revival, how many average Catholics and average Jews say, how is that Eucharistic revival doing for you in your personal life? Exactly. Say what? What Eucharist? Or there was, there's a Eucharistic revival. What are you talking about? Right. Because they, they don't, they're, they're not immersed you know, in, in Catholic media all exactly. day long, you know? And so exactly. what, what affects them are not these grand gestures on the part of the church. What yep. affects them are boots on the ground, local initiatives. What is this priest in this parish doing? What is yep. he like? What is he yep. preaching? How present is he to his people? What is he doing? What is the faith life of this particular people like? To go back to what you said, what is my neighborhood? What is this community like? How has this parish changed over the years? That's that's where the rubber meets the road. Absolutely. And I also think that what you just highlighted there is some a point that's very important for me philosophically and personally, and ironically, you'll hear what I'm about to say is we've and this is everywhere, so it's not just the institutional church. We've abstracted from the human person so much. And I think this is the door that John Paul II, the Vatican Council, Benedict, they were all knocking yeah. on this door. We have abstracted from the human person so much that we can only think and these abstracted systems of change, rather than saying the localized approach, like you're saying, like, okay, I know, I I want the faith to be more on fire. I know Father so-and-so at the parish over here would be so, I'm going to go talk to him about it and see what I can do here. Or I'm yeah. going to go talk to this person. In other words, it's it's all personal and it, it's it's personal and localized because persons are localized. And I just think- That's right. You, you, and you see it like, like look at, uh, not to bring up a huge topic, but AI, like that- is going to grow and grow and grow and be fed by this bureaucratic structure in our world to literally decide, Hey, Larry, can, you know, you do X, Y, or Z today, or, you know what I'm saying? Like that, that's where this is going. And I just think, and I'm not saying that in a conspiratorial sense. What I mean is, is that allows, that allows more bureaucratic systematic grand plan structuring that by nature is going to dehumanize people. Because exactly. Not, I mean, come on. It, it, it bureaucratize everything. If you're let's have, let's exactly. have a parish. Let's have a wide, a, a, a parish-wide meeting, uh, where a priest asks the question: um, uh, "Is it a sin to be stupid?" Uh, yeah. Well, yes, yes, it is. Okay, let's talk about that. Let's talk about the cultivated stupidity of so many of us, myself included. Here's what's really bad about being stupid. Let's talk about stupid. Stupid is a stupid. Or here's another one. Let's talk as a parish about what it means to be an asshole. 
Okay. And let's try mm-hmm. not to be assholes. So yeah. let's have a synod on assholishness and let's hold this synod on stupidity, assholishness, indifference, and so on. Because now you're talking about what people experience on experience. a day. Exactly. Right? Every asshole they encounter, every dumbass they encounter in their lives, every person who with the crushing indifference towards anything except themselves, yeah. all right, or their next car or whatever. That's where the rubber meets the road. Yep. And that's what we, we need. We need more synods on being stupid assholes than, <laughs> than anything else. But anyway, I can say that on my podcast because it's mine and I'll say exactly whatever. you do what you want. This is your space. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree. And I think and I think, too, that you'll see there's I would also and I'll say one final thing on this is I'll say if, if once these changes start, what I think people will also see is you'll see things where I've noticed in my own life. Like when you, as you become closer to Christ, you change, right? You become like you do things differently. You start to think differently. You look at things differently, right? Mm-hmm. But the the converse can also happen. Meaning someone else could, you start to see where they like maybe it's a friend, and all of a sudden they're just not going in the right direction. That's that cost we're talking about earlier. That's yeah, and that's and that's I think the struggle people have because then it begets here we are again to conflict, where it's looked at as like. Well, we can't have conflicts so in order to, you know, no, it's sometimes you have to stand your ground on what's right. And that's not being a idealist or, a, you know, using the word principles, not in a dyna- dynamic way, using it in a static way. It's being a human person and living a life and that life that they're proposing is contrary to the Christ life. So you just have to say, I can't live that life. I, you know, again, using the healthy example we talked about earlier, if someone says, Hey, just go eat McDonald's with me every day, you'll be fine. No, I don't think so. You're going to have a health problem. And if that's right. you're starting to live a healthy life, you're not going to be eating as many McDonald's meals. Right. So that's the conflict. Right. So, but anyway, and I like McDonald's, but I agree. I like you. McDonald's too. <laughs> McDonald's is just fine. All right. Uh, well, I think, well, let's end on that. I have to end on that. Yeah. A happy meal great. note. All right. Okay. Great. Well, thank you, Andrew. We we uh, covered everything from soup to nuts, and we have finally come up with a formula for fixing the church. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome, everyone. Yeah, exactly. Great. Thank you, one and all, for joining us today. This was fun, and uh, I'm, I'm sure I'll have Andrew back on again someday. So take care, everyone, and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Larry. Okay. You're welcome. Now I need to figure out how to shut this thing off. And uh, okay, now I know. Here we go. Bye, everyone.